If you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out. <clears throat> Turn with me to uh, Acts chapter 4 today. And as you're doing that, you can get your core guide out. I'm going to move this guy here. I was reading uh, some publications from Barna Research Group this week, and there were a couple things that... Um, well, maybe I'm not startled by it any longer, but I was a little bit alarmed by a few things that I read uh, this week. Uh, <clears throat> the sermon title that you note on your bulletin is called uh, Facing the Moment of Truth. There's always going to be times in our lives where we feel like maybe we're facing a moment of truth, the one that I want to address specifically today, the moment of truth when we have opportunity to share our faith, where we um, may be in a conversation with a loved one, a friend, a t complete stranger, and we get the nudging of the Holy Spirit that says, now may be a really good time um, to have a faith, spiritual conversation we get to that moment, and that is a moment of truth, is it not? It is. You can go ahead and agree with that. Um, that's not an opinion. That's a fact. Um, what are we going to do when we face that particular moment of truth? Scripture is pretty clear, is it not, that followers of Christ, our responsibility, our obligation is to share our faith. That's how the gospel spreads with other people. It's, it's not a, hey, if you feel like it thing uh, that's part of the Christian faith. Uh, it is a, you will do this if you are my follower, followers, says Jesus. So, to be witnesses, sometimes an intimidating kind of a thing, but how will we, re we respond in that moment? So what I was looking at, that Barna had published, they did two surveys 25 years apart, asking the same question of those that they had participate. So in 1993, um, they, they put this statement out there, asked people to respond whether or not they believed this. Uh, converting people to Christianity is the job of the local church. Did you hear that? So, make sure you hear this correctly. Converting people to Christianity is the job of the local church. So, in other words, they set the, the statement up to see how many people viewed the church as a place and not a people. In 1993, only 10% of people only 10% of Christians uh, believed that it was the church's responsibility to bring people to Christ. Spin forward 25 years later, that number's grown to 29%. So there's been a three, it has grown three times, the three times the number of people now believe that the primary responsibility for spreading the gospel falls on the local church place, what we do here. 
There's a moving away from personal responsibility in sharing faith. That's what this survey is pointing out. Another question, a statement that they put out there in 1993, and uh, nine out of ten Christians believed this statement, so 90%. Uh, and that goes back to what I started with. Every Christian has the responsibility to share their faith. Nine out of ten people in 1993 believe that. Now, only a little over six in ten believe that. There's a moving away from believing that one of the core things of Jesus' teaching about being witnesses, we are backing away from that. Another study was published uh, two weeks ago, February 2019. Um, Barna published an article about the results of a recent poll and the question they asked was something like this. Is it wrong, you could put, insert the word morally wrong, is it wrong to share your personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that one day they will share the same faith? It's a simple question about evangelism. Is it right or wrong to share your faith? And the trend, the trend is not good. They had split it up into the various generations. Millennials, Gen Xers, Boomers, and so forth. You can look up the article, but I, as a whole, our, our trend is not, not healthy. It's not biblical. I think there may be a number of factors that are curbing many Christians from, or Christians' enthusiasm about sharing what Jesus has done in their lives with others. Um, maybe the decline of religion in our country. Um, uh, there's a growing apathy towards spiritual matters. There's a growing cultural suspicion of people of faith. There's this increased pressure in our society to allow people to believe whatever they want to believe and whatever is right for them is just okay. And so you have no right to push your faith or talk about your faith in hopes that they would convert because that would be arrogant and exclusive. Maybe it's just the failing of the church. Maybe, maybe we haven't done a good enough job teaching about the church being comprised of the people, not the place. That when we talk about the church going out and sharing the good news, it means that each of us go out individually and share the good news, or we go out in twos or threes or what, whatever it is, but we find ourselves engaged in spiritual conversations with the people around us. So as we get towards... Um, the message that I have in Acts chapter 4, I, um, while, while I'm preaching about Acts 4, I, I, I have something I want you to think about. I recognize that when we come to this moment in our worship service, this moment in our week, um, 
this may be the quietest place that you inhabit. This may be the place where you all can get lost in your thoughts. <laughs> There's so much information that bombards us on a daily basis. There's so much noise that's out there that when we get to a moment like this, our minds tend to scramble all over the place because we think that we have to be doing more. And so focusing on one thing may be a challenge. And if, if your mind starts to wander today, let it wander to this. If there, was, if there was no such thing as the New Testament, follow me here, the first disciples, Peter and John, that we're about to read about, there, there was no New Testament at the time. They're forming the New Testament. They're participating in the, in the New Testament. But they don't have it to point people to. So, go with me here. If, if there was no such thing as the New Testament, what would people know about Jesus based on your life? How you live, what you say about him. Can, can you think about that? If your mind starts to wander, think about that. If there was no New Testament, what would your friends who are far from God right now know about Jesus just from being in your presence? Would they say you're generous, loving, kind? Oh, he, he or she is just a really good, solid person. Is that it? Is that it? There's, there's many people out there who will never touch this book. And the only way that they will ever have an understanding of what Jesus is like is because they've seen you live it out. They've heard you talk about Jesus. So my question is, does your life compel them to want to open this book up and find out what makes them tick? Why would they respond like that? Who is this Jesus person that they appear to love so much? So that's your assignment. So when your mind is wandering, consider that. That'll take a long time, I think. The book of Acts is an explosion of sorts. Uh, it starts off with Jesus leaving instructions for the disciples before he ascends to heaven. Um, there's this group of believers that gathers and they are praying and we read about the Holy Spirit descending upon them and filling them and, you know, and they were in the temple at this time and so the, there's tongues of fire and, and they're speaking in different languages and the crowd gathers and Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 people come to faith. And we read about people being saved and people getting healed and we read about this close-knit fellowship of believers and how they teach one another and care for one another and they gather to pray and you would say so far things are things seem to be going really well for this new fellowship leading up to chapter 4 we talked about it last week Peter and John are they are headed to the temple one day and they're confronted 
uh, by a, a crippled beggar who is laid out every day by the gate so that he could beg for money. He asks him for money, and Peter and John say, well, we don't have any money, but what we have we'll certainly give you. And Peter grabs his arm and picks him, helps him up to his feet, and, and he is healed. He's able to walk and jump and praise God. People come running. What happened? We know this man to be the one who, who's continually sitting, begging by the gate, and now he's jumping around. What, what's going on? Peter takes the opportunity to preach again. See, when you get thousands of people, you know, all excited, um, maybe people who are of the faith now are like, yeah, this is awesome. Other people who don't know what's going on, they're just intrigued in amazement and wonder, and they've, they've gathered around, and, and when you get that many people moving in the same direction, and when there are powerful miracles that are happening, and this large group makes a scene in the temple complex, it's going to get some people's attention. And so all of these happenings draw the attention of the priests, the captain of the guard, and the members of the, the Sadducees, and they are thinking, oh, what's going on? This, this can't be good. This Jesus disturbance, we thought we had taken care of that by nailing him to the cross, but now it seems like they, his followers think that he's back somehow, and, and this Jesus disturbance is on the verge of turning into a mass movement. We've got to do something about it. So if you're a religious leader in this and you see all of these things happening, you probably feel threatened a little bit. Things are spinning out of control, and you're a person who likes to keep things you know, in a nice, tight little box exercise con control over it. Maybe they felt like they were going to lose some power and position in all of this. The Spirit of God is breaking through in, in their midst, and it certainly can't be ignored. Thousands of people are paying attention to it, but since it's threatening to the leaders, we gotta, we got to do something about it. This can't happen. So while Peter is preaching, we get to chapter 4. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, okay, I'm only two verses in, but I, we got to pause here. The peep, some of the people who confronted Peter and John are Sadducees, and they're Jewish aristocrats, elite, um, elitists, and they, they hold a lot of power economically, um, politically. Uh, they're just at the top um, of the Jewish society. And they, um, they're very, very conservative. Um, politically, they would be ones who would probably collaborate a little bit with Rome, um, and they're very uh, conservative theologically as, as well. Uh, they, these are people who don't believe in the resurrection. They don't, they don't believe resurrection is possible, so to hear these disciples claim that Jesus was raised from the dead, just, that's threatening to them. They don't, they don't understand that. Uh, resurrection um, annoys 
them. Resurrection unsettles them. Resurrection frightens them. It messes up all of their fixed categories. Because if Jesus is raised from the dead, that means that dead people don't stay dead. It means that life as we know it, can, God can flip it upside down. And everything goes with it. So people who are hopeless don't have to be hopeless anymore. The rich don't stay rich. The poor don't stay poor. The lame don't stay lame. Do you understand this? And so the people who are at the top, these Sadducees who have all the power, well, when God makes everything right in the world, they may lose some of their power. They may lose their place. They may lose their position, and this is what they have worked. This is the pinnacle of why they exist. It's to lord that over the people. And here's these guys that are preaching the resurrection, and they know that this is a very dangerous thing. They seized Peter and John because it was evening. They put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So 2,000 more people came to Christ that day, just the men. Women and children included in that number. This is getting, you know, so we were at 3,000, now it's 5,000 plus all the women and children. This is a big group of followers now. The next day, the rulers... The elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. Luke does a really good job of setting this up, that all of the power brokers are on one side, you see? He went out of his way to list people's names, and, all of, and the, the entire high priest's family is there. So imagine the Sanhedrin was, I think, 71, if I remember correctly. Plus, you have all the additional people that are listed here who are upset by what's going on. You have all of that on, powered up on one side of the room. And over here, you have <laughs> Peter and John. And they're about to face this inquisition. Two against a hundred. Luke also makes sure that he points out that these are all the smart, rich important people over here, and over here, a little bit, we'll get to it, Peter and John, it's obvious that they're ordinary, uneducated, common people. They're just fishermen from Galilee. How could they possibly, how could they possibly compete with all of that over there? They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? The name is important here. Remember they asked Jesus that question, and Jesus said, well, let me ask you a question as well, and if you can answer my question, then I'll answer your question. So Jesus asked the question, and they couldn't answer, so Jesus said, well, I'm not going to give you an answer either. How do you like that? <laughs> Jesus is a good question asker. But you might also remember that these same people accused Jesus of getting his power from the devil. And so they're really curious here, by what name, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. And before he answers the question, this is maybe my favorite line in this. 
Are we being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame? <laughs> are, are we really here because we healed a guy? I mean, isn't that a good deal? Isn't that what our scriptures tell us to do, that we should care for people who have need? Don't, don't you read that in the scriptures? Are, are we really here to answer questions about a good deed that we did? Then know this. Know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, if you want to, if you want to just write something down in your notes and you're ever at a loss of how to share the gospel message, turn to Acts chapter 4 and start in verse 10. And it lays out, it lays it out for you. So that maybe you, maybe you just use that as the device in your mind that when you're in a spiritual conversation and somebody says, well, tell me about Jesus, it, it's all right there. Know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. See, what, what Peter is telling them is you're implicated you have sin in this. You, you, you are part of, of what happened. And so when, when you're sharing a spiritual conversation, you can say we are all part and party to this. In, in a way, our sin, the sin of humanity, is what put Jesus on the cross. That's where that part of our responsibility in this comes up in this verse. <laughs> but God's greater than all that sin. God did something to forgive our sin when we confess it to him. But God raised Jesus from the dead. God is greater than death. You know, every human is going to die at some point. You could just die a physical death. You could die a spiritual death. But God is greater than all of that. We have rejected him. But you can turn. You can repent. You can, you can change your mind about this Jesus person. Instead of rejecting him, you can, you can embrace him and, and believe what it, is, what it was that he said. You can believe that what he said is also true about, about you and, and me. Because salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And the word there talks about wholeness. There's no other name in which we can find wholeness. And when you think about wholeness, what we're talking about is being restored to what God originally intended. We chose to sin. We, we chose to break that. We, we are tarnished before the Lord. And it's only in Jesus' name that we can be purified and restored and made whole. 
when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there in their midst, there was nothing they could say. There's no argument that they could muster. The Sanhedrin was silenced. They couldn't argue with the miracle that had been performed. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. Hey, we've got to figure this out. We've got, we got to get our ducks in a row because we don't know what to say here. Well, what are we going to do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But, but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. They want to control the press. They want to suppress information. They want to control the information, because if this leaks out, we're about to have a riot on our hands. If this gets out and people start believing in the resurrection, things are going to get turned upside down. People are going to start believing this, and that's going to wreck it for us. We are in trouble. You see, the power brokers, the elitists, these politicians, these religious leaders, and I don't think it's any different today than it was then. The people who have the power want to keep the power. And to keep the power, they need to fool the people and the masses that they're really concerned about them. So the only interest that this group of people has in this group over here is that they can control them and make them think that they care about them because then they'll keep giving them the power. Yes, we have your best interest in mind. No, no, you don't. You will make decisions to protect your power. This is what's, this is what's going on here. They, they didn't necessarily want to punish Peter and John for this, because that would have started its own riot. They sent him away saying, don't, don't speak about this anymore. Stop the flow of information. It's only going to be harmful. And they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, okay, so you're the judges here. You are the supreme court of Israel. You're the judges. So help us understand this. Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? <laughs> That's bold. That's bold. Who should we listen to? You or God? As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. In the moment of truth, truth that they were facing, they stood up for God. We, we can't not share what we have seen and heard because it is life-changing. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Whew. What a story. 
Well, look at verse 23. As soon as all of this happens, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. They go back to their core group, and uh, they, they tell them all about it. This is what happened. This is how we were threatened. The threats were very real. They told us to be quiet. I mean, think about it. This is the same group of people responsible for, for handing Jesus over to the Roman authorities. And they have, Peter and John have just been arrested, and so there's a very real threat that they could end up dead for all of this and, and end up hanging on a cross just like Jesus did. Um, this is a dangerous time for these people. What do you do when you're threatened? What do you do when there's resistance to what you're trying to do or what you're trying to say? Or, or maybe you try and start a spiritual conversation and you're threatened somehow for it. Whoa. What do you do? Do you back down so that you don't get in trouble or get hurt? I remember back in my elementary school years, the threat of going to the principal's office was real. Right, Glenn? Yes. Yes. The threat of the principal's office was so real. You didn't want to get into any kind of trouble and have to go there because, whoo, it's a scary place facing the authorities of the day. What could be worse than that? Because you know what happens when you go to the principal's office. They pick up the phone and they call your parents. I don't want my parents to know what I've done. Because you know what happens when my parents find out what I've done? My parents tell Pauline about it. Now, when I was growing up, Pauline was the paddle in our house. Pa Pauline wasn't a real nice person. She was mean, stung a lot. And so when there was a threat, or where there was a, you know, when it seemed like maybe we were getting a little out of hand on the playground, and that that schoolyard monitor blew the whistle and said, hey, none of this. Yes, I will fall into line. I will change my behavior. I will straighten up and I will fly right because I don't want to go to the principal's office and I don't want him to call my mom and dad and I don't want my mom and dad to tell Pauline about it because that might hurt. What do you do? when you feel a little bit threatened. See, Peter and John were facing a very real threat. And later in Acts, we find that Paul uh, faced lots of threats too, and he wrote a series of letters from um, prisons. Uh, he, he was put in prison for preaching the gospel, and, and there he, he didn't stop there. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, he's talking about, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, me being seized and arrested and, and convicted and put in jail here, uh, what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Don't worry, folks. Don't fear. Yes, I've been put in prison, but the gospel is moving forward. You ever notice that wherever Paul went, two things seemed to happen? One, the gospel was preached, and two, a riot broke out. And well, maybe there's three, he ended up in prison. You, you know, I've noticed these days that, 
you know, it seems like wherever Christians go nowadays, a conference breaks out. And we want to sit around and we want to talk about all of the cool things that we're about to do sometime. Paul says, yes, I'm in prison, but it's helped advance the gospel. That's crazy to think. Now, you got to look at the word for advance there. It's a military word, which means taking ground. The gospel is advancing. The gospel is taking ground. Yes, I'm in prison, but it's still moving forward. And you might say, well, how is that possible? Well, when Paul was in prison, there were guards in the prison. There was a guard assigned to Brother Paul. Can you imagine being the guard assigned to Paul? Uh, He'd talk your ear off, I'm sure. Uh, He wouldn't shut up. Hey, how's your life going? How's your your family? I mean, you look a little down today. Can I tell you some good news? There's this guy, his name Jesus. He did all these sorts of things, and he he died for you too. You can be forgiven for all of those things. I, I think being the guard assigned to Paul probably felt like the guard was stuck in the middle seat on an airplane and Paul had the aisle and was like, hey, you're not going anywhere. And we got a long flight here, brother. (laughs) I got a few things that I want to share with you today. Paul says the gospel kept moving forward because he was able to share with the guards and the guards started believing and they went out and they told their buddies and before you know it, there's Christians that that are in the Roman legion flanks that march all the way to Rome. The gospel is still taking ground. It doesn't matter my circumstance or my environment. The gospel still moves forward. Paul is saying that no environment and no circumstance will dictate how I act and think and feel. Nothing will sway me from sharing the good news. In the moment of truth, when I'm facing the moment of truth, nothing will sway me. What about, what about you? Are there times, are there places where circumstances, environments maybe that you go through where maybe you feel like your, the boldness that you have for your faith just kind of fades away into the background so you can get through without feeling uncomfortable? It's okay to say yes to that because it happens to all of us. Verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. (laughs) When they heard all of this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant and our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. When they go back and they tell their core group about what had happened to them, the first instinct that they had was to pray about it together. The first thing that they do is go to God in prayer. 
See, the beautiful thing about adversity when we face it is that it can tell you something about yourself. It can tell you what kind of a follower that you, that you actually are. Because there's, um, there's a difference between a fan, be, being a fan and a follower. Um, if you are a fan of something, then you, you're kind of like a groupie. You probably can recite lots of really cool facts. You, can, you know the information, you know the story, you know a little bit of the history. And maybe you're in it uh, as a fan or a groupie for some of the fringe or perk, the perks that you might enjoy for being in, being in the club. You know, when it comes to Jesus, are you a fan or are you a follower? I'm sure that most of us, if whether you are a, a follower of Jesus or not, most people can tell you some facts about Jesus. Oh yeah, wasn't he the guy who walked on water? Didn't he, couldn't he calm the storm? Didn't he heal a lot of people? I heard that he fed 5,000 people one time. Wasn't he the, the one that they, they claim rose from the dead? Those are all facts that we know. Those are things that we can read in Scripture, and, and I'm sure that we can recite lots of things about Jesus. But are you a fan, or are you interested in being a true disciple? Have you truly met Jesus? Do you know the love and the grace and the mercy that he extends to you? During times of adversity and resistance, if you turn to yourself to try and get you to try and figure your way out of it, you're probably a fan. But if you turn to God, if you go to him first, it says something about the trust that you have in him as a disciple. These, mom, these men and women in, in the moment of adversity, they begin to cry out to God and they pray, Sovereign Lord, they acknowledge that all power and all authority is with God and they declare all of these things about God and, and they start by uh, putting their situation in God's hands and in the context and the reality that God is over everything. God's over all of it. Nothing that's happening right now is taking God by surprise. It's all happening within God. How would your prayer have started? If you had just been seized, arrested, questioned, and threatened, what would, what would your prayer sound like? You want to hear what mine might have sounded like? Help! Rescue me! They're after me! I'm going to die! God, I need you to intervene. I need you to do something to those who are threatening me. Take care of this, and I need you to do it now. If not, five minutes ago would have been really nice, but can you really get this thing under control? But these folks, they started differently. Do you see the perspective that their prayer gave them? They stepped back and they recognized God. They recognized Him as being a good and great and wonderful and powerful, mighty God and, and that they're trusting Him in this moment that He has a, a handle on all of the things that they're going through. They acknowledge that He sees what they don't see and He understands what they don't understand in this moment. And they know that this situation is not greater than God. And they quote Psalm 2. And if you look at, if you look at Psalm 2, if you, if you page over to that in your Bible, um, they quote verses 1 and 2, but verses 3 and 4 are, are a good follow-up. 
Psalm 2, verse 3, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. These are the people who are uh, oppressing. The one, God, enthroned in heaven, laughs. Ha <laughs> ha! The Lord scoffs at them. He scoffs at their plans. Well, psalm 2 in its entirety is a, it's a victory psalm. It's one that the people would um, pray and, and sing. Um, and it's one that's proclaiming the victory of God through his anointed one, his Messiah. And so by quoting Psalm 2, I think they're reminding themselves that, you know, we might be challenged, we might be threatened, we might be oppressed right now, but God has all of this under control and he's probably laughing at their plans, knowing that they're all going to unravel in the end anyway. See, when you face adversity, use it as an opportunity to lean into God and to pray. Put, put your full weight on God. Get with your core group. Get with other people in this fellowship. Get with them and begin to pray over your situations when you're feeling threatened and resisted. Oftentimes in our lives, have you noticed, when, when adversity hits, we remember things we ought to forget, and we forget things that we ought to remember. We forget God's goodness and how he has been faithful to us in the past. We forget all of the scriptures and what they say about God. We are so overwhelmed with the situation in the moment that the stress and the anxiety and the fear that we are feeling, it gets up to right here in our eyeballs and we can no longer see those good things that we're supposed to remember. The situation is so, looming so large in front of us that it's hard to see beyond any of that to have a true vision of who God is. But these believers, they pause, and they remember the things that they're supposed to remember. They remember the goodness and the faithfulness in God, and they say, we trust you, God. That, that's the first part of their prayer. We trust you, God. Did you notice they didn't spend much time talking about the actual problem and what happened? Verse 29 says, Consider their threats, God, and they quickly move on. And the second part of their prayer is, Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Whew. Is that what you would pray? Would you pray for boldness? Or would you pray for protection, for safety? God, deliver me from this situation. Their prayer is, fill us, send us out, make us bold. Don't let this threat, this fear, scare us from advancing the gospel. When we get to the moment of truth, God, fill us with what we need so that we can boldly proclaim your word. Oh, what, what is boldness, Christian boldness? I think we've all seen really negative examples people who think that they're being bold for Christ and they carry around uh, signs and they say things and they post things all the time that, that just really beat people over the head and they think that that's sharing the love of Christ and it's not. Well, one way maybe to think about boldness in this context is uh, to understand it and recognize that boldness in this sense is surrendering the outcome. It, it is stepping out and taking a risk. 
we tend to do things when there's a calculated ending. If I do this, this, and this, then this outcome will happen, right? We're, this is how we operate. Boldness, in this case, is surrendering the outcome. Jesus has asked us to do things, and he says, don't worry about the outcome. I've got that under control. All I want you to do is be faithful in this moment. I'll give you what you need. I'll, you have the Holy Spirit to fill you, empower you, and, and give you a, a holy boldness. But it's when we can't predict the outcome. Remember Star Trek? To boldly go where no one has gone before. It is risky to venture off into the unknown. Would you be willing to pray for boldness? Trusting that God somehow has a plan and that he is for you and he goes with you in this endeavor, that the outcome is left up to him and you don't have to determine the outcome you must only be faithful. Would you, would you pray for that kind of boldness? We get to the very end of this chapter, and the, verse 31 says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Their prayer was, was answered, apparently, and the ground shook ground shook. It struck me that Satan had been trying to shake their faith for a while. He's trying to set up circumstances. He's trying to use the power brokers of the day who are threatened. He uses them to silence Peter and John and stop this movement of new followers of Christ from advancing the gospel. Satan's brought out his A-game to shake their faith, to get them to run away and hide and be scared because maybe things are going to you know, go bad and we may end up dead. Well, that's a, that's a big threat. If you don't want to die, then zip it. He's working to shake their faith, and the only thing that shakes is the ground. Don't you love that? They're not shaken at all. They're concerned, yes, that's why they're praying to God. But Satan's been trying to shake them, and the only thing that shakes in this case is the ground. Their faith is unshakable. And I wonder if that can be said of us. Would you take steps to go deeper in with Jesus? Will you pray for boldness in the places that you find yourself these days? Would you consider that even in the difficult circumstances that you might be facing right now, that God has you there to advance his message of grace and forgiveness to somebody, that God might have you on the front lines of this battle to advance the gospel.
Would you pray to be filled with boldness so that your friends who are far from God right now would know His grace? of His truth and of His love that's found in our Lord Jesus, and that might happen because you were faithful to share it with Him. Do you need boldness? I'm going to ask our worship team to come back, and we're going to sing a closing song. But I, I, want, to, I want to pray for us first. And My question for you is this. If you would pray for boldness, would, would you just stand where you are right now? Some of you can't, I understand. We got a hand in the air. I see that, sister. I think that's pretty much all of us. The church isn't just a building on First Street that we're gathered in right now. You. You're the church. And the marching orders that Jesus gave all of us was to share what we have found in him with other people. It's not always easy. And that's why we pray for boldness. So God, look at this room. We all can do better. Lord, this is a confession that maybe we're not always bold. This is an acknowledgement that we need something more. This is a willingness that we will go all in. So fill us, God. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with the power that we need to be bold witnesses for you. Lord, help us to see with your eyes those around us who are desperately struggling through life and just need your words of grace. Would you nudge us when the opportunity is there to share a loving word, to share part of our own story of how you have impacted our own lives? Lord, we accept the responsibility that you've given us to go and to share, to spread the word, no matter what. So when we are faced in the moment of truth and resistance, God, help us to power through and to do so in loving and grace-filled ways so that how we live and how we speak out in the world are things that would would compel people, would, would draw people into your word, into asking questions about, hey, tell me more about that. And when those opportunities arise, Lord, help us to step into them. Help us to be faithful followers, we pray, Lord. Lord, we lift our voices to you in these moments. Thank you, Jesus.